CD4 What are they doing now? asked the old man. The young woman glanced at the scrying glass. Heading Rimwoods at speed, she reported. By the way, they've still got that box on legs. The old man chuckled, an oddly disturbing sound in the dark and dusty crypt. Sapient pearwood, he said. Remarkable. Yes, I think we will have that. Please, see to it, my dear, before they go beyond your power, perhaps. Silence, or... Or what, Liesa? said the old man. In this dim light there was something odd about the way he was slumped in the stone chair. You killed me once already, remember? She snorted and stood up, tossing back her hair scornfully. It was red, flecked with gold. Erect, Liesa Wirmbida was entirely a magnificent sight. She was also almost naked, except for a couple of mere scraps of the lightest chainmail and riding boots of iridescent dragonhide. In one boot was thrust a riding crop, unusual in that it was as long as a spear and tipped with tiny steel barbs. "'My power will be quite sufficient,' she said coldly. The indistinct figure appeared to nod, or at least to wobble. "'As you keep assuring me,' he said. Liesa snorted and strode out of the hall. Her father did not bother to watch her go. One reason for this was, of course, that since he had been dead for three months, his eyes were in any case not in the best of condition. The other was that, as a wizard, even a dead wizard of the fifteenth grade, his optic nerves had long since become attuned to seeing interlevels and dimensions far removed from common reality, and were therefore somewhat inefficient at observing the merely mundane. During his life they had appeared to others to be eight-faceted and eerily insectile. Besides, since he was now suspended in the narrow space between the living world and the dark shadow world of death, he could survey the whole of causality itself. That was why, apart from a mild hope that this time his wretched daughter would get herself killed, he did not devote his considerable powers to learning more about the three travellers galloping desperately out of his realm. Several hundred yards away, Liesa was in a strange humour as she strode down the worn steps that led into the hollow heart of the Wierenberg, followed by half a dozen riders. Would this be the opportunity? Perhaps here was the key to break the deadlock, the key to the throne of the Wierenberg. It was rightfully hers, of course, but tradition said that only a man could rule the Wierenberg. That irked Liesa, and when she was angry the power flowed stronger and the dragons were especially big and ugly. If she had a man, things would be different. Someone who, for preference, was a big strapping lad, but short on brains. Someone who would do what he was told. The biggest of the three now fleeing the Dragonlands might do, and if it turned out that he wouldn't, then dragons were always hungry and needed to be fed regularly. She could see to it that they got ugly. Uglier than usual, anyway. The stairway passed through a stone arch and ended in a narrow ledge near the roof of the great cavern where the Wyrms roosted. Sunbeams from the myriad entrances around the walls criss-crossed the dusty gloom like amber rods in which a million golden insects had been preserved. Below they revealed nothing but a thin haze. Above. The walking rings started so close to Liesa's head that she could reach up and touch one. They stretched away in their thousands across the upturned acres of the cavern roof. 
It had taken a score of masons, a score of years, to hammer the pitons for all those, hanging from their work as they progressed. Yet they were as nothing compared to the eighty-eight major rings that clustered near the apex of the dome. A further fifty had been lost in the old days, as they were swung into place by teams of sweating slaves, and there had been slaves aplenty in the first days of the power. And the great rings had gone crashing into the depths, dragging their unfortunate manipulators with them. But eighty-eight had been installed, huge as rainbows, rusty as blood. From them... The dragons sense Liesa's presence. Air swishes around the cavern as eighty-eight pairs of wings unfold like a complicated puzzle. Great heads with green, multifaceted eyes peer down at her. The beasts are still faintly transparent. While the men around her take their hook boots from the rack, Liesa bends her mind to the task of full visualisation. Above her in the musty air, the dragons become fully visible, bronze scales dully reflecting the sunbeam shafts. Her mind throbs, but now that the power is flowing fully, she can, with barely a waver of concentration, think of other things. Now she too buckles on the hook boots and turns a graceful cartwheel to bring their hooks with a faint clang against a couple of the walking rings in the ceiling. Only now it is the floor. The world has changed. Now she is standing on the edge of a deep bowl or crater, floored with the little rings across which the dragon riders are already strolling with a pendulum gait. In the centre of the bowl, their huge mounts wait among the herd. Far above are the distant rocks of the cavern floor, discoloured by centuries of dragon droppings. Moving with the easy gliding movement that is second nature, Liesa sets off towards her own dragon, Laolith, who turns his great, horsey head towards her. His jowls are greasy with pork fat. It was very enjoyable, he says in her mind. I thought I said there were to be no unaccompanied flights, she snaps. I was hungry, Lieta. Curb your hunger. Soon there will be horses to eat. The rain's sticking our teeth. Are there any warriors? We like warriors. Liesa swings down the mounting ladder and lands with her legs locked round Laolith's leathery neck. The warrior is mine. There are a couple of others you can have. One appears to be a wizard of sorts, she adds by way of encouragement. Oh, you know how it is with wizards. Half an hour afterwards you could go with another one, the dragon grumbles. He spreads his wings and drops. They're gaining, screamed Rincewind. He bent even lower over his horse's neck and groaned. Two Flower was trying to keep up while at the same time craning around to look at the flying beasts. You don't understand, screamed the tourist above the terrible noise of the wingbeats. All my life I've wanted to see dragons. From the inside, shouted Rincewind, shut up and ride. He whipped at his horse with the reins and stared at the wood ahead, trying to drag it closer by sheer willpower. Under those trees they'd be safe. Under those trees no dragons could fly. He heard the clap of wings before the shadows folded around him. Instinctively, he rolled in the saddle and felt the white-hot stab of pain as something sharp scored a line across his shoulders. Behind him, Hurun screamed, but it sounded more like a bellow of rage than a cry of pain. The barbarian had vaulted down into the heather and had drawn the black sword, Kring. He flourished it as one of the dragons curved in for another low pass. No bloody lizard does that to me, he roared. Rincewind leaned over and grabbed Two Flower's reins. Come on, he hissed. But the dragons, said Two Flower, entranced. Blast the 
began the wizard and froze. Another dragon had peeled off from the circling dots overhead and was gliding towards them. Rincewind let go of Two Flowers' horse, swore bitterly, and spurred his own mount towards the trees alone. He didn't look back at the sudden commotion behind him, and when a shadow passed over him, merely gibbered weakly and tried to burrow into the horse's mane. Then, instead of the searing, piercing pain he'd expected, there was a series of stinging blows as the terrified animal passed under the eaves of the wood. The wizard tried to hang on, but another low branch, stouter than the others, knocked him out of the saddle. The last thing he heard before the flashing blue lights of unconsciousness closed in was a high reptilian scream of frustration and the thrashing of talons in the treetops. When he awoke, a dragon was watching him. At least it was staring in his general direction. Rincewind groaned and tried to dig his way into the moss with his shoulder blades, then gasped as the pain hit him. Through the mists of agony and fear, he looked back at the dragon. The creature was hanging from a branch of a large dead oak tree several hundred feet away. Its bronze-gold wings were tightly wrapped around its body, but the long equine head turned this way and that at the end of a remarkably prehensile neck. It was scanning the forest. It was also semi-transparent. Although the sun glinted off its scales, Rincewind could clearly make out the outlines of the branches behind it. On one of them, a man was sitting, dwarfed by the hanging reptile. He appeared to be naked except for a pair of high boots, a tiny leather hold-all in the region of his groin, and a high-crested helmet. He was swinging a short sword back and forth idly, and stared out across the treetops with the air of one carrying out a tedious and unglamorous assignment. A beetle began to crawl laboriously up Rincewind's leg. The wizard wondered how much damage a half-solid dragon could do. Would it only half kill him? He decided not to stay and find out. Moving on heels, fingertips and shoulder muscles, Rincewind wriggled sideways until foliage masked the oak and its occupants. Then he scrambled to his feet and haired off between the trees. He had no destination in mind, no provisions and no horse, but while he still had legs he could run. Ferns and brambles whipped at him, but he didn't feel them at all. When he'd put about a mile between him and the dragon, he stopped and collapsed against a tree, which then spoke to him. Psst, it said. Dreading what he might see, Rincewind let his gaze slide upwards. It tried to fasten on innocuous bits of bark and leaf, but the scourge of curiosity forced it to leave them behind. Finally, it fixed on a black sword, thrust straight through the branch above Rincewind's head. Don't just stand there, said the sword, in a voice like the sound of a finger dragged around the rim of a large empty wine glass. Pull me out. What? said Rincewind, his chest still heaving. Pull me out, repeated Kring. It's either that or I'll be spending the next million years in a cold measure. Did I ever tell you about the time I was thrown into a lake up in the... What happened to the others, said Rincewind, still clutching the tree desperately. Oh, the dragon's got them, and the horses, and that box thing. Me too, except that Harun dropped me. What a stroke of luck for you. Well, began Rincewind. Kring ignored him. I expect you'll be in a hurry to rescue them, it added. Yes, well... So if you'll just pull me out, we can be off. Rincewind squinted up at the sword. A rescue attempt had hitherto been so far at the back of his mind that if some advanced speculations on the nature and shape of the many-dimensioned multiplexity of the universe were correct... 
It was right at the front, but a magic sword was a valuable item. And it would be a long trek back home, wherever that was. He scrambled up the tree and inched along the branch. Kring was buried very firmly in the wood. He gripped the pommel and heaved until the lights flashed in front of his eyes. Try again, the sword said encouragingly. Rincewind groaned and gritted his teeth. Could be worse, said Kring. This could have been an anvil. Yug, hissed the wizard, fearing for the future of his groin. I have a multidimensional existence, said the sword. Hmm? I have had many names, you know. Amazing, said Rincewind. He swayed backwards as the blade slid free. It felt strangely light. Back on the ground again, he decided to break the news. I really don't think the uh, rescue is a good idea, he said. I think we'd better head back to the city, you know, to raise a search party. The dragons headed hubwards, said Kring. However, I suggest we start with the one in the trees over there. Um, sorry, but you can't leave them to their fate. Rincewind looked surprised. I can't, he said. No, you can't. Look, I'll be frank, I've worked with better material than you, but it's either that or... Have you ever spent a million years in a coal measure? Look, I... So if you don't stop arguing, I'll chop your head off. Rincewind saw his own arm snap up until the shimmering blade was humming a mere inch from his throat. He tried to force his fingers to let go. They wouldn't. I don't know how to be a hero, he shouted. I propose to teach you. Bronze Persepha rumbled deep in his throat. Hoi Sudra, the dragon rider, leaned forward and squinted across the clearing. I see him, he said. He swung himself down easily from branch to branch and landed lightly on the tussocky grass, drawing his sword. He took a long look at the approaching man, who was obviously not keen on leaving the shelter of the trees. He was armed, but the dragon rider observed with some interest the strange way in which the man held the sword in front of him at arm's length, as though embarrassed to be seen in its company. Koi Sudra hefted his own sword and grinned expansively as the wizard shuffled towards him. Then he leapt. Later, he remembered only two things about the fight. He recalled the uncanny way in which the wizard's sword curved up and caught his own blade with a shock that jerked it out of his grip. The other thing, and it was this he averred that led to his downfall, was that the wizard was covering his eyes with one hand. Koi Sudra jumped back to avoid another thrust and fell full length on the turf. With a snarl, Psepha unfolded his great wings and launched himself from his tree. A moment later, the wizard was standing over him, shouting, Tell it that if it singes me, I'll let the sword go. I will, I'll let it go, so tell it. The tip of the black sword was hovering over Koi Sudra's throat. What was odd was that the wizard was obviously struggling with it, and it appeared to be singing to itself. Psepha! Koi Sudra shouted. The dragon roared in defiance, but pulled out of the dive that would have removed Rincewind's head, and flapped ponderously back to the tree. Talk, screamed Rincewind. Koi Sidra squinted at him up the length of the sword. What would you like me to say? he asked. What? I said, what would you like me to say? Where are my friends? The barbarian and the little man is what I mean. 
I expect they have been taken back to the Wilmberg. Rincewind tugged desperately against the surge of the sword, trying to shut his mind to Kring's bloodthirsty humming. What's a Wilmberg? he said. The Wilmberg. There is only one. It is Dragonhome. And I suppose you were waiting to take me there, eh? Cleesadra yelped involuntarily as the tip of the sword pricked a bead of blood from his Adam's apple. Don't want people to know you've got dragons here, eh? snarled Rincewind. The dragon rider forgot himself enough to nod and came within a quarter inch of cutting his own throat. Rincewind looked around desperately and realised that this was something he really was going to have to go through with. Right then, he said, as diffidently as he could manage. You'd better take me to this Wilmberg of yours, hadn't you? I was supposed to take you in dead, muttered Koisadra sullenly. Rincewind looked down at him and grinned slowly. It was a wide, manic and utterly humorless rictus. It was the sort of grin that is normally accompanied by small riverside birds wandering in and out, picking up scraps out of the teeth. Alive will do, said Rincewind. If we're talking about anyone being dead, remember whose sword is in which hand. If you kill me, nothing will prevent Psephar killing you, shouted the prone dragon rider. So what I'll do is I'll chop bits off, agreed the wizard. He tried the effect of the grin again. Oh, all right, said Koisera sulkily. Do you think I've got no imagination? He wriggled out from under the sword and waved at the dragon, which took wing again and glided in towards them. Rincewind swallowed. You mean we've got to go on that, he said. Koisadra looked at him scornfully, the point of Kring still aimed at his neck. How else would anyone get to the Wilmberg? I don't know, said Rincewind. How else? I mean, there is no other way. It's flying or nothing. Rincewind looked again at the dragon before him. He could quite clearly see through it to the crushed grass on which it lay, but when he gingerly touched a scale that was a mere golden sheen on thin air, it felt solid enough. Either dragons should exist completely, or fail to exist at all, he felt. A dragon only half existing was worse than the extremes. I didn't know dragons could be seen through, he said. Koisadra shrugged. Didn't you? he said. He swung himself astride the dragon awkwardly because Rincewind was hanging onto his belt. Once uncomfortably aboard, the wizard moved his white-knuckle grip to a convenient piece of harness and prodded Koisadra lightly with the sword. Have you ever flown before? said the dragon rider without looking round. Not as such, no. Would you like something to suck? Rincewind gazed at the back of the man's head, then dropped to the bag of red and yellow sweets that was being proffered. Is it necessary? he asked. It is traditional, said Koisadra. Please yourself. The dragon stood up, lumbered heavily across the meadow, and fluttered into the air. Rincewind occasionally had nightmares about teetering on some intangible but enormously high place, and seeing a blue-distanced, cloud-punctuated landscape reeling away below him. This usually woke him up with his ankles sweating. He would have been even more worried had he known that the nightmare was not, as he thought, just the usual disc-world vertigo. It was a backwards memory of an event in his future so terrifying that it had generated harmonics of fear all the way along his lifeline. This was not that event, but it was good practice for it. Psephar clawed its way into the air with a series of vertebra-shattering bounds. 
At the top of its last leap, the wide wings unfolded with a snap and spread out with a thump which shook the trees. Then the ground was gone, dropping away in a series of gentle jerks. Psepha was suddenly rising gracefully, the afternoon sunlight gleaming off wings that were still no more than a golden film. Rincewind made the mistake of glancing downwards and found himself looking through the dragon to the treetops below. Far below. His stomach shrank at the sight. Closing his eyes wasn't much better because it gave his imagination full rein. He compromised by gazing fixedly into the middle distance where moorland and forest drifted by and could be contemplated almost casually. Wind snatched at him. Cleesadra half turned and shouted into his ear, Behold! The Wyrmberg! Rincewind turned his head slowly, taking care to keep Kring resting lightly on the dragon's back. His streaming eyes saw the impossibly inverted mountain rearing out of the deep forested valley like a trumpet in a tub of moss. Even at this distance he could make out the faint octarine glow in the air that must be indicating a stable magic aura of at least, he gasped, several milliprime, at least. Oh no, he said. Even looking at the ground was better than that. He averted his eyes quickly and realised that he could now no longer see the ground through the dragon. As they glided around in a wide circle towards the Wirenberg, it was definitely taking on a more solid form, as if the creature's body was filling with a gold mist. By the time the Wirenberg was in front of them, swinging wildly across the sky, the dragon was as real as a rock. Rincewind thought he could see a faint streak in the air, as if something from the mountain had reached out and touched the beast. He got the strange feeling that the dragon was being made more genuine. Ahead of it, the Wierenberg turned from a distant toy to several billion tons of rock poised between heaven and earth. He could see small fields, woods and a lake up there, and from the lake a river spilled out and over the edge. He made the mistake of following the thread of foaming water with his eyes and jerked himself back just in time. The flared plateau of the upturned mountain drifted towards them. The dragon didn't even slow. As the mountain loomed over Rincewind like the biggest fly-swatter in the universe, he saw a cave mouth. Psepha skimmed towards it, shoulder muscles pumping. The wizard screamed as the dark spread and enfolded him. There was a brief vision of rock flashing past, blurred by speed. Then the dragon was in the open again. It was inside a cave, but bigger than any cave had a right to be. The dragon, gliding across its vast emptiness, was a mere gilded fly in a banqueting hall. There were other dragons, gold, silver, black, white, flapping across the sun-shafted air on errands of their own or perched on outcrops of rock. High in the domed roof of the cavern, scores of others hung from huge rings, their wings wrapped bat-like around their bodies. There were men up there, too. Rincewind swallowed hard when he saw them because they were walking on that broad expanse of ceiling like flies. Then he made out the thousands of tiny rings that studded the ceiling. A number of inverted men were watching Psepha's flight with interest. Rincewind swallowed again. For the life of him, he couldn't think of what to do next. Well, he asked in a whisper, any suggestions? Obviously, you attack, said Kring scornfully. Why didn't I think of that, said Rincewind. Could it be because they all have crossbows? You're a defeatist. Defeatist? That's because I'm going to be defeated. "'You're your own worst enemy, Rincewind,' said the sword. Rincewind looked up at grinning men. "'Bet,' he said wearily. Before Kring could reply, Psepha reared in mid-air and alighted on one of the large rings, which rocked alarmingly. 
Would you like to die now or surrender first? asked Aisidra calmly. Men were converging on the ring from all directions, walking with a swaying motion as their hooked boots engaged the ceiling rings. There were more boots on a rack that hung in a small platform built on the side of the perch ring. Before Rincewind could stop him, the dragon rider had leapt from the creature's back to land on the platform, where he stood grinning at the wizard's discomfiture. There was a small expressive sound made by a number of crossbows being cocked. Rincewind looked up at a number of impassive, upside-down faces. The dragonfolk's taste in clothing didn't run to anything much more imaginative than a leather harness studded with bronze ornaments. Knives and sword sheaths were worn inverted. Those who were not wearing helmets let their hair flow freely so that it moved like seaweed in the ventilation breeze near the roof. There were several women among them. The inversion did strange things to their anatomy. Rincewind stared. Surrender, said Koisadra again. Rincewind opened his mouth to do so. Kring hummed a warning, and agonising waves of pain shot up his arm. Never, he squeaked. The pain stopped. Of course he won't, boomed an expansive voice behind him. He's a hero, isn't he? Rincewind turned and looked into a pair of hairy nostrils. They belonged to a heavily built young man, hanging nonchalantly from the ceiling by his boots. What is your name, hero? said the man, so that we know who you were. Agony shot up Rincewind's arm. Uh, 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 I'm Rincewind of Ankh, he managed to gasp. And I am Leo Dragonlord, said the hanging man, pronouncing the word with the harsh click in the back of the throat that Rincewind could only think of as a kind of integral punctuation. You have come to challenge me in mortal combat. Well, n no, I, I didn't. You are mistaken, Aisadra. Help our hero into a pair of hook boots. I am sure he is anxious to get started. No, look, I, I came here to find my friends. I'm sure there's really no... Rincewind began as the dragon rider guided him firmly onto the platform, pushed him onto a seat and proceeded to strap hook boots to his feet. Hurry up, Koisadra! We mustn't keep our hero from his destiny, said Leo. Look, I expect my friends are happy enough here, so if you could just, uh, you know, set me down somewhere... You will see your friends soon enough, said the Dragon Lord airily. If you are religious, I mean. None who enter the Wirmberg ever leave again, except metaphorically, of course. Show him how to reach the rings, Koisadra. Look what you've got me into, Rincewind hissed. Kring vibrated in his hand. Remember that I am a magic sword, it hummed. How can I forget? Climb the ladder and grab a ring, said the dragon rider. Then bring your feet up until the hooks catch. He helped the protesting wizard climb until he was hanging upside down, robed tucked into his breeches. Kring dangling from one hand. At this angle, the dragonfolk looked reasonably bearable, but the dragons themselves, hanging from their perches, loomed over the scene like immense gargoyles. Their eyes glowed with interest. Attention, please, said Leo. A dragon rider handed him a long shape wrapped in red silk. We fight to the death, he said. Yours. And I, I suppose I earn my freedom if I win, 
said Rincewind without much hope. Liot indicated the assembled dragon riders with a tilt of his head. Don't be naive, he said. Rincewind took a deep breath. I suppose I should warn you, he said, his voice hardly quavering at all, that this is a magic sword. Liot let the red silk wrapping drop away into the gloom and flourished a jet-black blade. Runes glowed on its surface. What a coincidence, he said, and lunged. Rincewind went rigid with fright, but his arm swung out as Kring shot forward. The swords met in an explosion of octarine light. Liot swung himself backwards, his eyes narrowing. Kring leapt past his guard, and although the Dragonlord's sword jerked up to deflect most of the force, the result was a thin red line across its master's torso. With a growl, he launched himself at the wizard, boots clattering as he slid from ring to ring. The swords met again in another violent discharge of magic, and at the same time, Liot brought his other hand down against Rincewind's head, jarring him so hard that one foot jerked out of its ring and flailed desperately. Rincewind knew himself to be almost certainly the worst wizard on the Discworld, since he knew but one spell. Yet for all that he was still a wizard, and thus by the inexorable laws of magic this meant that upon his demise it would be Death himself who appeared to claim him, instead of sending one of his numerous servants, as is usually the case. Thus it was that, as a grinning Liot swung back and brought his sword around in a lazy arc, time ran into treacle. To Rincewind's eyes, the world was suddenly lit by a flickering octarine light, tinged with violet, as photons impacted on the sudden magical aura. Inside it, the Dragonlord was a ghastly huge statue, his sword moving at a snail's pace in the glow. Beside Liot was another figure, visible only to those who can see in the extra four dimensions of magic. It was tall and dark and thin, and against a sudden night of frosty stars, it swung two-handed, a scythe of proverbial sharpness. Rincewind ducked. The blade hissed coldly through the air beside his head, and entered the rock of the cavern roof without slowing. Death screamed a curse in his cold, crypt voice. The scene vanished. What passed for reality on the Discworld reasserted itself with a rush of sound. Leo gasped at the sudden turn of speed with which the wizard had dodged his killing stroke, and with that desperation only available to the really terrified, Rincewind uncoiled like a snake and launched himself across the space between them. He locked both hands around the Dragonlord's sword arm and wrenched. It was at that moment that Rincewind's one remaining ring, already overburdened, slid out of the rock with a nasty little metal sound. He plunged down, swung wildly, and ended up dangling over a bone-splintering death, with his hands gripping the Dragonlord's arm so tightly that the man screamed. Liot looked up at his feet. Small flakes of rock were dropping out of the roof around the ring pitons. Let go, damn you, he screamed, or we'll both die. Rincewind said nothing. He was concentrating on maintaining his grip, and keeping his mind closed to the pressing images of his fate on the rocks below. Shoot him! bellowed Liot. Out of the corner of his eye, Rincewind saw several crossbows levelled at him. Liot chose that moment to flail down with his free hand, and a fistful of rings stabbed into the wizard's fingers. He let go. Two Flower grabbed the bars and pulled himself up. Say anything, said Hrun from the region of his feet. Just clouds. Hrun lifted him down again and sat on the edge of one of the wooden beds that were the only furnishings in the cell. Bloody hell, he said. Don't despair, said Two Flower. 
I'm not despairing. I expect it's all some sort of misunderstanding. I expect they'll release us soon. They seem very civilised. Harun stared at him from under bushy eyebrows. He started to say something, then appeared to think better of it. He sighed instead. And when we get back, we can say we've seen dragons, Two Flower continued. What about that, eh? Dragons don't exist, said Harun flatly. Codis of Chimeria killed the last one two hundred years ago. I don't know what we're seeing, but they aren't dragons. But they carried us up in the air. In that hall there must have been hundreds. I expect it was just magic, said Harun dismissively. Well, they look like dragons, said Two Flower, an air of defiance about him. I always wanted to see dragons ever since I was a little lad. Dragons flying around in the sky, breathing flames. They just used to crawl around in swamps and stuff, and all they breathed was stink, said Hurun, lying down in the bunk. They weren't very big either. They used to collect firewood. I heard they used to collect treasure, said Two Flower, and firewood. Hey, Hurun added, brightening up, did you notice all those rooms they brought us through? Pretty impressive, I thought. Lot of good stuff about. Plus some of those tapestries have got to be worth a fortune. He scratched his chin thoughtfully, making a noise like a porcupine shouldering its way through gorse. What happens next? asked Two Flower. Harun screwed a finger in his ear and inspected it absently. Oh, he said, I expect in a minute the door will be flung back and I'll be dragged off to some sort of temple arena where I'll fight maybe a couple of giant spiders and an eight-foot slave from the jungles of Clatch, and then I'll rescue some kind of a princess from the altar and then kill off a few guards or whatever, and then this girl will show me the secret passage out of the place and we'll liberate a couple of horses and escape with the treasure. Harun leaned his head back on his hands and looked at the ceiling, whistling tunelessly. All that, said Two Flower, usually. Two Flower sat down on his bunk and tried to think. This proved difficult because his mind was awash with dragons. Dragons. Ever since he was two years old, he'd been captivated by the pictures of the fiery beasts in the Octarine fairy book. His sister had told him they didn't really exist, and he recalled the bitter disappointment. If the world didn't contain those beautiful creatures, he decided, it wasn't half the world it ought to be. And then later, he had been bound apprentice to Nine Reads the Master Account, who in his grey-mindedness was everything that dragons were not, and there was no time for dreaming. But there was something wrong with these dragons. They were too small and sleek compared to the ones in his mind's eye. Dragons ought to be big and green and clawed and exotic and fire-breathing. Big and green with long, sharp, Something moved at the edge of his vision, in the furthest, darkest corner of the dungeon. When he turned his head, it vanished, although he thought he heard the faintest of noises that might have been made by claws scrabbling on stone. Hurun, he said. There was a snore from the other bunk. Two flower padded over to the corner, poking gingerly at the stones in case there was a secret panel. At that moment, the door was flung back, thumping against the wall. Half a dozen guards hurtled through it, spread out, and flung themselves down on one knee. Their weapons were aimed exclusively at Harun. When he thought about this later, Two Flower felt quite offended. Harun snored. A woman strode into the room. Not many women can stride convincingly, but she managed it. She glanced briefly at Two Flower, as one might look at a piece of furniture, then glared down at the man on the bed. She was wearing the same sort of leather harness that the dragon riders had been wearing, but in her case it was much briefer. 
That and the magnificent mane of chestnut red hair that fell to her waist was her only concession to what even on the disc world passed for decency. She was also wearing a thoughtful expression. Harun made a glubbing noise, turned over and slept on. With a careful movement, as though handling some instrument of rare delicacy, the woman drew a slim black dagger from her belt and stabbed downwards. Before it was halfway through its arc, Harun's right hand moved so fast that it appeared to travel between two points in space without any time occupying the intervening air. It closed around the woman's wrist with a dull smack. His other hand groped feverishly for a sword that wasn't there. Harun awoke. Hmm? he said, looking up at the woman with a puzzled frown. Then he caught sight of the bowmen. Let go, said the woman in a voice that was calm and quiet and edged with diamonds. Harun released his grip slowly. She stepped back, massaging her wrist, and looking at Harun in much the same way that a cat watches a mouse hole. So, she said at last, you pass the first test. What is your name, barbarian? Who are you calling a barbarian? snarled Harun. That is what I want to know. Harun counted the bowmen slowly and made a brief calculation. His shoulders relaxed. I am Hrun of Chimeria, and you? Liesa, Dragon Lady. You are the lord of this place? That remains to be seen. You have the look about you of a hired sword, Hrun of Chimeria. I could use you, if you pass the tests, of course. There are three of them. You have passed the first. What are the other... Hrun paused, his lips moved soundlessly... And then he hazarded, uh, two. Perilous. And the fee? Valuable. Excuse me, said Two Flower. And if I fail these tests, said Harun, ignoring him. The air between Harun and Liesa crackled with small explosions of charisma as their gazes sought for a hold. If you had failed the first test, you would now be dead. This may be considered a typical penalty. Um, look, began Two Flower. Liesa spared him a brief glance and appeared actually to notice him for the first time. Take that away, she said calmly, and turned back to Harun. Two of the guards shouldered their bows, grasped Two Flower by the elbows, and lifted him off the ground. Then they trotted smartly through the doorway. Hey, said Two Flower, as they hurried down the corridor outside. Where, as they stopped in front of another door, is my, as they dragged the door open, luggage? He landed in a heap of what once might have been straw. The door banged shut, its echoes punctuated by the sound of bolts being slammed home. In the other cell, Harun had barely blinked. Okay, he said. What is the second test? You must kill my two brothers. Harun considered this. Both at the same time, or one after the other, he said. Consecutively or concurrently, she assured him. What? Just kill them, she said sharply. Good fighters, are they? Renowned. So in return for all this? You will wed me and become Lord of the Wirmberg. There was a long pause. Harun's eyebrows twisted themselves in unaccustomed calculation. I get you and this mountain, he said at last. Yes, 
She looked him squarely in the eye, and her lips twitched. The fee is worthwhile, I assure you. Harun dropped his gaze to the rings on her hand. The stones were large, being the incredibly rare blue milk diamonds from the clay basins of Mythos. When he managed to turn his eye from them, he saw Liesa glaring down at him in fury. So calculating, she rasped, Harun the barbarian who would boldly walk into the jaws of death himself? Harun shrugged. Sure, he said. The only reason for walking into the jaws of death is so you can steal his gold teeth. He brought one arm around expansively, and the wooden bunk was at the end of it. It cannoned into the bowman, and Harun followed it joyously, felling one man with a blow and snatching the weapon from another. A moment later it was all over. Liesa had not moved. Well, she said. Well what? said Harun from the carnage. Do you intend to kill me? What? Oh, no, no, this is just, you know, kind of a habit, just keeping in practice. So where are these brothers? He grinned. Twoflower sat on his straw and stared into the darkness. He wondered how long he had been there. Hours at least, days probably. He speculated that perhaps it had been years and he had simply forgotten. No, that sort of thinking wouldn't do. He tried to think of something else. Grass, trees, fresh air, dragons, dragons. There was the faintest of scrabblings in the darkness. Twoflower felt the sweat prickle on his forehead. Something was in the cell with him, something that made small noises, but even in the pitch blackness gave the impression of hugeness. He felt the air move. When he lifted his arm, there was the greasy feel and faint shower of sparks that betokened a localised magical field. Twoflower found himself fervently wishing for light. A gout of flame rolled past his head and struck the far wall. As the rocks flashed into furnace heat, he looked up at the dragon that now occupied more than half the cell. I obey, Lord, said a voice in his head. By the glow of the crackling, spitting stone, Twoflower looked into his own reflection in two enormous green eyes. Beyond them, the dragon was as multi-hued, horned, spiked and lithe as the one in his memory. A real dragon. Its folded wings were nevertheless still wide enough to scrape the wall on both sides of the room. It lay with him between its talons. Obey, he said, his voice vibrating with terror and delight. Of course, Lord. The glow faded away. Twoflower pointed a trembling finger at where he remembered the door to be and said, Open it. The dragon raised its huge head. Again the ball of flame rolled out, but this time, as the dragon's neck muscles contracted, its colour faded from orange to yellow, from yellow to white, and finally to the faintest of blues. By that time the flame was also very thin, and where it touched the wall the molten rock spat and ran. When it reached the door the metal exploded into a shower of hot droplets. Black shadows arced and jiggered over the walls. The metal bubbled for an eye-aching moment, and then the door fell in two pieces in the passage beyond. The flame winked out with a suddenness that was almost as startling as its arrival. Twoflower stepped gingerly over the cooling door and looked up and down the corridor. It was empty. The dragon followed. The heavy door frame caused it some minor difficulty, which it overcame with a swing of its shoulders that tore the timber out and tossed it to one side. The creature looked expectantly at Twoflower, its skin rippling and twitching as it sought to open its wings in the confines of the passage. "'How did you get in there?' said Twoflower. You summoned me, master. 
I don't remember doing that. In your mind, you called me up. In your mind, thought the dragon patiently. You mean, I just thought of you, and there you were? Yes. It was magic? Yes. But I've thought about dragons all my life. In this place, the frontier between thought and reality is probably a little confused. All I know is that once I was not, and then you thought me, and then I was. Therefore, of course, I am yours to command. Good grief! Half a dozen guards chose that moment to turn the bend in the corridor. They stopped, open-mouthed. Then one remembered himself sufficiently to raise his crossbow and fire. The dragon's chest heaved. The quarrel exploded into flaming fragments in mid-air. The guards scurried out of sight. A fraction of a second later, a wash of flame played over the stones where they'd been standing. Two Flower looked up in admiration. "'Can you fly, too?' he said. "'Of course.' Two Flower glanced up and down the corridor and decided against following the guards. Since he knew himself to be totally lost already, any direction was probably an improvement. He edged past the dragon and hurried away, the huge beast turning with difficulty to follow him. They padded down a series of passages that crisscrossed like a maze. At one point Two Flower thought he heard shouts a long way behind him, but they soon faded away. Sometimes the dark arch of a crumbling doorway loomed past them in the gloom. Light filtered through dimly from various shafts, and here and there bounced off big mirrors that had been mortared into the angles of the passage. Sometimes there was a brighter glow from a distant light well. What was odd, thought Two Flower, as he strolled down a wide flight of stairs and kicked up billowing clouds of silver dust motes, was that the tunnels here were much wider, and better constructed too. There were statues in niches set in the walls, and here and there faded but interesting tapestries had been hung. They mainly showed dragons, dragons by the hundred, in flight, or hanging from their perch rings, dragons with men on their backs, hunting down deer, and sometimes other men. Two Flower touched one tapestry gingerly. The fabric crumbled instantly in the hot, dry air, leaving only a dangling mesh where some threads had been plaited with fine gold wire. "'I wonder why they left all this,' he said. "'I don't know,' said a polite voice in his head. He turned up and looked into the scaly horse face above him. "'What is your name, dragon?' said Twoflower. "'I don't know.' "'I think I shall call you Nine Reeds.' "'That is my name, then.' They waded through the all-encroaching dust in a series of huge, dark-pillared halls which had been carved out of the solid rock. With some cunning, too, from floor to ceiling the walls were a mass of statues, gargoyles, bas-reliefs and fluted columns that cast weirdly moving shadows when the dragon gave an obliging illumination at Two Flowers' request. They crossed the lengthy galleries and vast carven amphitheatres, all awash with deep, soft dust and completely uninhabited. No one had come to these dead caverns in centuries. Then he saw the path, leading away into yet another dark tunnel mouth. Someone had been using it regularly and recently. It was a deep, narrow trail in the grey blanket. Twoflower followed it. It led through still more lofty halls and winding corridors quite big enough for a dragon. And dragons had come this way once, it seemed. There was a room full of rotting harness, dragon-sized, and another room containing plate and chainmail big enough for elephants. They ended in a pair of green bronze doors, each so high that they disappeared into the gloom. In front of Two Flower, at chest height, was a small handle shaped like a brass dragon, 
When he touched it, the doors swung open instantly, and with a disconcerting noiselessness. Instantly, sparks crackled in Two Flower's hair, and there was a sudden gust of hot, dry wind that didn't disturb the dust in the way that ordinary wind should, but instead whipped it up momentarily into unpleasantly half-living shapes before it settled again. In Two Flower's ears came the strange, shrill twittering of the things locked in the distant dungeon dimensions out beyond the fragile lattice of time and space. Shadows appeared where there was nothing to cause them. The air buzzed like a hive. In short, there was a vast discharge of magic going on around him. The chamber beyond the door was lit by a pale green glow. Stacked around the walls, each on its own marble shelf, were tier upon tier of coffins. In the centre of the room was a stone chair on a raised dais, and it contained a slumped figure which did not move, but said in a brittle old voice, Come in, young man. Two flowers stepped forward. The figure in the seat was human as far as he could make out in the murky light, but there was something about the awkward way it was sprawled in the chair that made him glad he couldn't see it any clearer. I'm dead, you know came a voice from what Two-Flower fervently hoped was a head, in conversational tones. "'I expect you can tell.' "'Um,' said Two-Flower, "'yes,' he began to back away. "'Obvious, isn't it?' agreed the voice. "'You'd be Two-Flower, wouldn't you? Or is that later?' "'Later?' said Two-Flower. "'Later than what?' he stopped. "'Well,' said the voice, "'you see, one of the advantages of being dead "'is that one is released, as it were, from the bonds of time, "'and therefore I can see everything that has happened or will happen "'all at the same time, "'except that, of course, I now know that time "'does not, for all practical purposes, exist.' "'That doesn't sound like a disadvantage,' said Two-Flower. "'You don't think so? "'Imagine every moment being at one and the same time "'a distant memory and a nasty surprise, "'and you'll see what I mean. "'Anyway, I now recall what it was I'm about to tell you, "'or have I already done so? "'That's a fine-looking dragon, by the way. "'Or don't I say that yet?' "'It is rather good. It just turned up,' said Two-Flower. "'It turned up?' said the voice. "'You summoned it?' "'Yes, well, all I did—' "'You have the power?' "'All I did was think of it.' "'That's what the power is. "'Have I already told you that I am Greychar the first? Or is that next? I'm sorry, but I haven't had too much experience of transcendence. Anyway, yes, the power. It summons dragons, you know. I think you already told me that, said Two-Flower. Did I? I certainly intended to, said the dead man. But how does it? I've been thinking about dragons all my life, but this is the first time one's turned up. "'Oh, well, you see, the truth of the matter is that dragons have never existed as you, and until I was poisoned some three months ago, I understand existence. I'm talking about the true dragon, 
Draconis Nobilis, you understand. The swamp dragon, Draconis Vulgaris, is a base creature and not worth our consideration. The true dragon, on the other hand, is a creature of such refinement of spirit that they can only take on form in this world if they are conceived by the most skilled imagination. And even then the said imagination must be in some place heavily impregnated with magic, which helps to weaken the walls between the world of the seen and the unseen. Then the dragons pop through, as it were, and impress their form on this world's possibility matrix. I was very good at it when I was alive. I could imagine up to, oh, five hundred dragons at a time. Now Liesa, the most skilled of my children, can barely imagine fifty rather nondescript creatures. So much for a progressive education. She doesn't really believe in them. That's why her dragons are rather boring. While yours, said the voice of Gracia, is almost as good as some of mine used to be. A sight for sore eyes. Not that I have any to speak of now. Two flowers said hurriedly, You keep saying you're dead. Well... Well, the dead, um, they, you know, don't talk much, as a rule. I used to be an exceptionally powerful wizard. My daughter poisoned me, of course. It is the generally accepted method of succession in our family. But, the corpse sighed, or at least a sigh came from the air a few feet above it. It soon became obvious that none of my three children is sufficiently powerful to wrest the lordship of the Wilmberg from the other two. A most unsatisfactory arrangement. A kingdom like ours has to have one ruler. So I resolved to remain alive in an unofficial capacity, which of course annoys them all immensely. I won't give my children the satisfaction of burying me until there is only one of them left to perform the ceremony. <laughs> there was a nasty wheezing noise. Two Flower decided that it was meant to be a chuckle. So it was one of them that kidnapped us, said Two Flower. Liesa, said the dead wizard's voice. My daughter... Her power is strongest, you know. My son's dragons are incapable of flying more than a few miles before they fade. Fade? I did notice that we could see through the one that brought us here, said Two Flower. I thought that was a bit odd. Of course, said Gracher. The power only works near the Wirmberg. It's the inverse square law, you know. At least I think it is. As the dragons fly further away, they begin to dwindle. Otherwise, my little Liesa would be ruling the whole world by now, if I know anything about it. But I can see I mustn't keep you. I expect you'll be wanting to rescue your friend. Two Flower gaped. Harun, he said. Not him. The skinny wizard. My son, Leo... Is trying to hack him to pieces. 
I admired the way you rescued him. Um, Will, I mean. Two Flower drew himself up to his full height. An easy task. Where is he? he said, heading towards the door with what he hoped was an heroic stride. Just follow the pathway in the dust, said the voice. Lyssa comes to see me sometimes. She still comes to see her old dad, my little girl. She was the only one with the strength of character to murder me. A chip off the old block. Good luck, by the way. I seem to recall I said that. We'll say it now, I mean. The rambling voice got lost in a maze of tenses as Two Flower ran along the dead tunnels, with the dragon loping along easily behind him. But soon he was leaning against a pillar completely out of breath. It seemed ages since he'd had anything to eat. Why don't you fly? said Nine Reeds inside his head. The dragon spread its wings and gave an experimental flap, which lifted it momentarily off the ground. Two Flower stared for a moment, then ran forward and clambered quickly onto the beast's neck. Soon they were airborne, the dragon skimming along easily a few feet from the floor and leaving a billowing cloud of dust in its wake. Two Flower hung on as best he could as Nine Reeds swooped through a succession of caverns and soared around a spiral staircase that could easily have accommodated a retreating army. At the top they emerged into the more inhabited regions, the mirrors at every corridor corner brightly polished and reflecting a pale light. I smell other dragons. The wings became a blur, and Two Flower was jerked back as the dragon veered and sped off down a side corridor like a gnat-crazed swallow. Another sharp turn sent them soaring out of a tunnel mouth in the side of a vast cavern. There were rocks far below, and up above were broad shafts of light from great holes near the roof. A lot of activity on the ceiling, too, as Nine Reeds hovered, thumping the air with his wings, Two Flower peered up at the shapes of roosting beasts and tiny men-shaped dots that were somehow walking upside down. "'This is a roosting hall,' said the dragon in a satisfied tone. As Two Flower watched, one of the shapes far above detached itself from the roof and began to grow larger. Rincewind watched as Lior's pale face dropped away from him. "'This is funny,' gibbered a small part of his mind." Why am I rising? Then he began to tumble in the air, and reality took over. He was dropping to the distant, guano-speckled rocks. His brain reeled with the thought. The words of the spell picked just that moment to surface from the depths of his mind, as they always did in times of crisis. Why not say us, they seemed to urge. What have you got to lose? Rincewind waved a hand in the gathering slipstream. Ashonai, he called. The word formed in front of him in a cold blue flame that streamed in the wind. He waved the other hand, drunk with terror and magic. Ebiris, he intoned. The sound froze into a flickering orange word that hung beside its companion. Urshoring, Kavantai, Python, Ngurad, Ferengomali. As the words blazed their rainbow colours around him, he flung his hands back and prepared to say the eighth and final word that would appear in coruscating octarine and seal the spell. The imminent rocks were forgotten. He began. The breath was knocked out of him. The spell scattered and snuffed out. A pair of arms locked around his waist, and the whole world jerked sideways as the dragon rose out of its long dive, claws grazing just for a moment the topmost rock on the Wiemberg's noisome floor. Two Flower laughed triumphantly. Got him! And the dragon, 
curving gracefully at the top of his flight, gave a lazy flip of his wings and soared through a cave mouth into the morning air. At noon, in a wide green meadow on the lush tableland that was the top of the impossibly balanced William Berg, the dragons and their riders formed a wide circle. There was room beyond them for a rabble of servants and slaves and others who scratched a living here on the roof of the world, and they were all watching the figures clustered in the centre of the grassy arena. The group contained a number of senior dragon lords, and among them were Liot and his brother Liartes. The former was still rubbing his legs with small grimaces of pain. Slightly to one side stood Liesa and Hrun, with some of the woman's own followers. Between the two factions stood the Wierenberg's hereditary lawmaster. As you know, he said uncertainly, the not fully late Lord of the Wierenberg, Great Char I, has stipulated that there will be no succession until one of his children feels himself, or as it might be, herself, powerful enough to challenge and defeat his or her siblings in mortal combat. Yes, yes, we know all that. Get on with it, said a thin, peevish voice from the air beside him. The lawmaster swallowed. He had never come to terms with his former master's failure to expire properly. Is the old buzzard dead or isn't he? he wondered. It is not certain, he quavered, whether it is allowable to issue a challenge by proxy. It is, it is, snapped Gracia's disembodied voice. It shows intelligence. Don't take all day about it. I challenge you, said Harun, glaring at the brothers, both at once. Liotrt and Liartes exchanged looks. "'You'll fight us both together?' said Liartes, a tall, wiry man with long black hair. "'Yeah.' "'That's pretty uneven odds, isn't it?' "'Yeah. I outnumber you one to two. Liotrt scowled. "'You arrogant barbarian!' "'That just about does it,' growled Harun. "'I'll—' The lawmaster put out a blue-veined hand to restrain him. It is forbidden to fight on the killing ground, he said, and paused while he considered the sense of this. You know what I mean, anyway, he hazarded, giving up, and added, As the challenged parties, my lords Liotrt and Liartes, have choice of weapons. Dragons, they said together. Liesa snorted. Dragons can be used offensively, therefore they are weapons, said Liotrt firmly. If you disagree, we can fight over it. Yeah, said his brother, nodding at Hrun. The lawmaster felt a ghostly finger prod him in the chest. Don't stand there with your mouth open, said Gracia's graveyard voice. Just hurry up, will you? Hrun stepped back, shaking his head. Oh, no, he said. Once was enough. I'd rather be dead than fight on one of those things. Die, then, said the lawmaster, as kindly as he could manage. Liotrt and Liartes were already striding back across the turf to where the servants stood waiting with their mounts. Harun turned to Liesa. She shrugged. Don't I even get a sword, he pleaded. A knife, even? No, she said. I didn't expect this. She suddenly looked smaller, all defiance gone. I'm sorry. You're sorry? Yes, I'm sorry. 
Yes, I thought you'd said you were sorry. Don't glare at me like that. I can imagine you the finest dragon to ride. No. The lawmaster wiped his nose on a handkerchief, held the little silken square aloft for a moment, then let it fall. A boom of wings made Harun spin round. Leot's dragon was already airborne and circling around towards them. As it swooped low over the turf, a billow of flame shot from its mouth, scoring a black streak across the grass that rushed towards Harun. At the last minute he pushed Liesa aside and felt the wild pain of the flame on his arm as he dived for safety. He rolled as he hit the ground and flipped onto his feet again while he looked around frantically for the other dragon. It came in from one side and Harun was forced to take a badly judged standing jump to escape the flame. The dragon's tail whipped around as it passed and caught him a stinging blow across the forehead. He pushed himself upright, shaking his head to make the wheeling stars go away. His blistered back screamed pain at him. Liot came in for a second run, but slower this time to allow for the big man's unexpected agility. As the ground drifted up, he saw the barbarian standing stock still, chest heaving, arms hanging loosely by his sides. An easy target. As his dragon swooped away, Liot turned his head, expecting to see a dreadfully big cinder. There was nothing there. Puzzled, Liot turned back. Harun, heaving himself over the dragon's shoulder scales with one hand and beating out his flaming hair with the other, presented himself to his view. Liot's hand flew to his dagger, but pain had sharpened Harun's normally excellent reflexes to needle point. A backhand blow hammered into the dragon lord's wrist, sending the dagger arcing away towards the ground, and another caught the man full on the chin. The dragon, carrying the weight of two men, was only a few yards above the grass. This turned out to be fortunate, because at the moment Liot lost consciousness, the dragon winked out of existence. Liesa hurried across the grass and helped Harun stagger to his feet. He blinked at her. What happened? What happened? he said thickly. That was really fantastic, she said. The way you turned that somersault in mid-air and everything. Yeah, but what happened? It's rather difficult to explain. Harun peered up at the sky. Liartes, by far the most cautious of the two brothers, was circling high above them. Well, you've got about ten seconds to try, he said. The dragons? Yeah? They're imaginary. Like all these imaginary burns on my arm, you mean? Yes, no, she shook her head violently. I'll have to tell you later. Fine, if you can find a really good medium, snapped Harun. He glared up at Liartes, who was beginning to descend in wide sweeps. Just listen, will you? Unless my brother is conscious, his dragon can't exist. It's got no pathway through to this. Run! shouted Harun. He threw her away from him and flung himself flat on the ground as Liarte's dragon thundered by, leaving another smoking scar across the turf. While the creature sought height for another sweep, Harun scrambled to his feet and set off at a dead run for the woods at the edge of the arena. They were sparse, little more than a wide and overgrown hedge, but at least no dragon would be able to fly through them. It didn't try. Liartes brought his mount in to land on the turf a few yards away and dismounted casually. The dragon folded its wings and poked its head in among the greenery while its master leaned against a tree and whistled tunelessly. I can burn you out, said Liartes after a while. The bushes remained motionless. Perhaps you're in that holly bush over there. The holly bush became a waxy ball of flame. I'm sure I can see movement in those ferns. The ferns became mere skeletons of white ash. 
You're only prolonging it, barbarian. Why not give in now? I've burned lots of people. It doesn't hurt a bit, said Liartes, looking sideways at the bushes. The dragon continued through the spinney, incinerating every likely-looking bush and clump of ferns. Liartes drew his sword and waited. Harun dropped from a tree and landed running. Behind him the dragon roared and crashed through the bushes as it tried to turn round, but Harun was running, running with his gaze fixed on Liartes and a dead branch in his hands. It is a little-known but true fact that a two-legged creature can usually beat a four-legged creature over a short distance, simply because of the time it takes the quadruped to get its legs sorted out. Harun heard the scrabble of claws behind him, and then an ominous thump. The dragon had half-opened its wings and was trying to fly. As Hrun bore down on the dragon lord, Liate's sword came up wickedly to be caught on the branch. Then Hrun cannoned into him, and the two men sprawled on the ground. The dragon roared. Liates screamed as Hrun brought a knee upwards with anatomical precision, but managed a wild blow that rebroke the barbarian's nose for him. Hrun kicked away and scrambled to his feet, to find himself looking up into the wild, hoarse face of the dragon, its nostrils distended. He lashed out with a foot and caught Liartes, who was trying to stand up, on the side of his head. The man slumped. The dragon vanished. The ball of fire that was billowing towards Harun faded, until when it reached him it was no more than a puff of warm air. Then there was no sound but the crackle of burning bushes. Harun slung the unconscious dragonlord over his shoulder and set off at a trot back to the arena. Halfway there he found Liot sprawled on the ground, one leg bent awkwardly. He stooped and, with a grunt, hoisted the man onto his vacant shoulder. Liesa and the lawmaster were waiting on a raised dais at one end of the meadow. The dragon woman had quite recovered her composure now and looked levelly at Harun as he threw the two men down on the steps before her. The people around her were standing in deferential poses, like a court. End of CD 4